and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyou.ai slash newsletter. My guest today is Rodrigo Rivera. He's a machine learning researcher at the Advanced Data Analytics in Science and Engineering Group at Skulltech and technical director of Samsung Next. He's previously been in data science and research leadership roles for over 10 years at leading companies all around the world. Rodrigo, thank you very much for joining me on Machine Learning Engineered. Thank you for having me, Charlie. It's amazing how many countries it seems that you've lived in. And when I add into the intro that it seems like you're, you've are you worked all over the world. I, I mean, I was indeed born in Mexico, but actually I have lived in 15 countries all over my life. Wow, that's amazing. I'm sure as we step through your career a little bit, we can get a sense of some of these, some of these amazing places. But uh, before we get to that, how were you first introduced to programming, to computer science, and why did you decide to go into it? It all started in the 90s. Back then, the internet was just becoming commercial. And as a child, I would stay at home and we'll have a computer at home connected to the internet. It was a, with a modem that was so 14K BPS, so very slow internet connection. It was very archaic, everything. But I was very curious on how can I generate a, things myself. And it, back then, there was very little knowledge. There was, a, in general, a, even at, in my school, there was nobody who had a internet connection. So I, I was very completely alone. And... Looking around, I found a tutorial online how to start doing websites. So I started doing like this classic 
90s websites, so where you will have so some some links that are colorful and some GIFs and some animations, etc. And over time, I started thinking, okay, how can I add some interactivity? Especially because in that time, JavaScript was coming out. So you have all these pop-ups that you, what's your name? And then based on your name, it changes the website and so on. So one thing led to the other. And basically, the web drew me all the way into, into computer science. And then shortly after that, you decided to start your own technology company, Amplito. So can you talk a little bit about the insight that you had there and what that eventually turned into? Yes. So that happened during my, my studies at the Technical University in Munich in that I was always very entrepreneurially inclined. And for one reason or the other, some projects that we have started didn't really so develop and so on, also because we were very early in our studies. But later towards the end, I was at a program called CTM, Center for Digital Technology Management, that is sort to say like an entrepreneurial school in Munich in Germany. And so there... People from different profile backgrounds and so on, they're paired together. And I was able there to meet is my, my co-founders who had a very complementary uh, so skills to mine. And we said, okay, let, let us do, let's do something together. Something that uh, we, we wanted to do was focus on uh, the, the job market. So we had noticed that it is in general, even today, it's very hard to find technical talent uh, for companies and so on. So we're thinking, how can we develop tools that help them uh, so go and reach them in the communities where they hang out? Let's say, so these subreddits, these boards and so on, where people gather for uh, technical discussions, but uh, they remain a little bit obscure for uh, recruiters. So we started developing that. But as we uh, evolved it, we realized, uh, actually, this is more like a business-to-business opportunity and maybe we do not have necessary skills for that we are still very um, so young we don't have yet the experience to do sales and so on so what can we do still in this space and we realized that was back in uh, so 2009 when we started and back then there was linkedin but it was very different to linkedin today it was much more limited also it was not made to be so to say like viral similar to facebook but rather you really need to put the email address of each person and uh, everything move much slower. So very different to what we have today. And Facebook at the same time was the opposite. It was growing very fast. They were opening their API and we thought, okay, why not try to do a um, business network on um, so Facebook? Also with the idea of, uh, in the end, our most valuable network is those people who are close to us and they can endorse us, they can tell who you are. So it's possible, for example, that if I am, let's say, someone who is um, very outspoken, that I get this endorsement. Similar to today, one can skill in LinkedIn, go and endorse people. So if they're really good in Excel or if they're really good presenters and so on. Similar to that, we, that's what we wanted to do, but for a personal traits for skills. So the idea is that not only you can see who are your connections and their connections and where they work, so that way through... Um, personal connections, you can find your new dream job, but also that your network can uh, provide a profile of you, of where do you excel at, what you're good for, and so on. And that's how we started. We, we were doing it. And at some point, basically one of the largest job boards in Europe, they approached us. So we were thinking maybe it makes sense to start looking for partners. And they came to us and say, hey, actually, we would like uh, to acquire you. And it was 2011 and we thought okay this sounds amazing and um, the startup ecosystem was very different to today where let's say today companies they will go 
and really try to get really big. But back then, things were much more, were much more modest. And we said, wow, this sounds great. Also a good opportunity to learn from more experienced people. So why not? Let's go and do it inside uh, this bigger organization. And that's how we end up selling Emplido. Wow, that's really amazing that, yeah, you were able to sell it. It's not that far after that you started it and just while you were doing your studies as well. That's really amazing. Exactly. I think that in entrepreneurship and, and in general, so if we think professionally, it's all about the right timing. And here it was uh, that uh, so everything related to social networking was getting very popular. Plus on top, we were doing what one could call today, um, so data analytics. And back then, we didn't even really knew that. There was not like really like a definition for that, but this was already very uh, basic, uh, so uh, use cases for what will be today data science and so on. And we were just thinking we need to mine this data in order to tell you that you have a friend of a friend who is uh, in this company and uh, the probability that it might be a good match for you is that and so on. So these were just things that we were intuitively thinking without really knowing that um, so later this can become so a whole field connected to data science and so on. Was that your first experience in working with working with a lot of data and trying to use it for practical purposes? Say like big data, indeed, of course, uh, during uh, some studies and some of those projects. And also I had all my own websites where I was trying to do things and then create so like small applications, etc. But all of this was always uh, in a much more limited scope. It really the first time where I had to go and think about um, so uh, anything related to redundancy of my data, anything related to uh, how to do um, so analytics on larger data sets and so on, uh, that was the first time. And also it was because of, of the tools themselves. If we think about 2009, back then, um, just I would say Pandas just came out and uh, so there was a bit of uh, so non-py, sci-py, but really this data ecosystem that we call today the, the data stack in Python was pretty much non-existing. So everything that we needed to do was also with Java and that made it very cumbersome. And as a result, there was also not many opportunities so where to do it, how to learn it. If I think at university, there were no real classes where one can uh, drill down into data and learn how to work with data. There was, let's say, like statistics and there will get just some text file of some lines to do some analysis, or there will be just databases. And databases was more about how do I design a schema? How do I uh, do a proper um, so database for my application and so on? But not nothing as what we could call today data analysis, data science and so on. Yeah, exactly. Even when I was just in university a few years ago, it was still only maybe one data science class and like you said, database classes and statistics. So yeah, definitely. Even though it is obviously much more widespread by now. But after, so you sold your company and Plato. And so did you go and work for the parent company after that for a while? Exactly. Exactly. That's uh, who, so what happened. I stay with them, but then it's a little bit that I realized with companies that uh, so it's so to say like a, like a family, like having a child and so on. In that is very different an environment where you are responsible for what happens in your company versus one where uh, you have to follow a strategy that was decided by someone else. And then I realized this is not exactly the environment where I feel uh, best at, and. At the same time, there, there is in Germany this uh, internet company called Rocket Internet. So here, uh, their main business model back then, now it has changed, but back then it was, let us look at successful business models in the US, in Europe, and let's bring that to emerging markets. So for example, let us do something like Amazon, something like Zappos, but in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, in Indonesia, and so on. 
or in Africa and so on. So on one side, I was already thinking, what to do next? I want still to uh, be entrepreneurially involved. What are the options? And then there was uh, this big company growing and trying to develop this ecosystem internationally. And we came in contact and it was a perfect fit because then I could basically go and build data science teams. Back then it was not necessarily data science called, so it was basically like data analytics. It was um, so... Um, predictive modeling and so on, but across geographies for these companies. Because if we think about, let's say, building a company in Indonesia or in the Philippines, one of the challenges is to find the right talent. But the company needs to grow fast. So there is no the opportunity to just wait until one find a good local hire, but rather I will go to the Philippines, I'll go to Indonesia, I will stay there for many months with the company, help them do this interim and help them build a team so then I can move to go to the next company and support them again. And in the company locally, they stay, it stays a local team that is of data scientists, data analysts. So that's what was the next step to, to go and build data science teams around the world. Me and my friends actually in college, we had studied the rocket internet business model just because we thought it was so interesting. Or it's, for listeners who don't know, it's a, like a startup studio. And they, of course, like you said, they use business models that have worked elsewhere and bring it to those emerging markets. And so in that role, it must have been very exciting to be able to work with so many different portfolio companies here and be able to go into the different ones and create their data strategies for their for their advertising, for their marketing what were some of the biggest things that you learned from that? Obviously, it's a much larger, uh, larger scale data analytics and, and data science than uh, you were, had done previously. Yes, it, it was a very interesting time, especially uh, so in, in, in the early days where we're talking about 2012 to 2013, so on, almost a decade by now. And the situation is that back then, even the term data science was not really mainstream. I remember the first time that I read about data science, it was around 2011, so late 2011. And I was thinking, what is that? And actually what I'm doing feels like that, but it's very different. So um, there was at that moment no real resources so uh, there was uh, no no community, no experts, no educational programs, and, and also no no definition what they should be exactly doing. Uh, back then, it was more about um, very uh, unclear goals or objectives of let's try to find value in the data and see what can be done out of it without any real direction whatsoever. So that was really one of the main challenges in that on one side, uh, companies started to identify, wow, this is there is value in our data and we have so much data behind, let's start doing something. But then at the same time, so what is the actual monetary value that we can get out of this? How can it can be monetized? And how can we assess if the team that we have is actually a competent one, if it is delivering value for the business and so on? So this was a very challenging, but also a very satisfying period. And also on the technological side. So by then, Pandas was pretty much stable. Also, there was a very side learn and so on. So the, the ecosystem was starting to be there. But historically, there was a, a lot of uh, legacy systems in, in internet companies. So Oracle databases and a lot of uh, so uh, very old BI systems and so on. So the other challenge was how do I operate with this ecosystem of uh, rather uh, old school tools that are complicated to use while at the same time I come with these uh, modern, cool approaches and so on. And that was also a, a big challenge because even the profiles of the people, so who is the data scientist doing Python versus the person who is working with Oracle and building here, uh, so dashboards and so on, it will be completely different school of thoughts, how things should be done, how they see things and so on. 
Yeah, exactly. That's one of the things that I've realized as I worked in, in industry more where, like you said, each team has their own ways that they want to do things with the data. Maybe if you're more of an application team, the data is more of a second thought. But of course, as the data science team who wants to get value from that data, you want it all centralized, like very nicely categorized so that you want uh, the schema to be immutable so it doesn't change. And what were some of the interesting things that you learned about collaboration between those teams that might have slightly different ideas of how it should be done? Uh, yes. What I realized is that, uh, so back then, the the idea of technical leadership for data, it was still very nascent. So back then, there would be either, let's say, like a manager for business intelligence, and it would be a very business-oriented person, or there would be a, the technical officer that would be basically a developer. So there was no uh, in-between person that had this knowledge of uh, some software engineering here working with data, plus on top understanding of the business who could serve us as a bridge. So most of the time in all these uh, projects, working with the portfolio companies of Rocket Internet and so on, it was primarily me having to guide the discussion and show to these both sides where the value resides in uh, doing this type of projects. Because of course, everyone will say we have very limited resources, uh, the IT department is very uh, overstretched and they have to decide, do I develop now a feature for the website, like a new button, or do I create an API so this team that they do things that I do not fully understand come and then they have access to, to this information and so on. So this, this, was, this was one thing that, that was uh, back then missing. And still, I see that it's still missing this uh, technical leadership for, for data roles. And then uh, it was the topic of... Um, so everything was still happening on, on the desktop, on, on terminals, and not on, on, on the cloud, as is the case today. Back then, there was not Google BigQuery. Back then, we didn't have really... There was Amazon Web Services, but it was already a little bit different to... Um, so how people were working. It is not as today where you just go and then you just fire up some instances in, in a Google Cloud or in Amazon Web Services, but rather you'll have your own, either one server as a machine or you will do everything in your laptop. So this transition going from whatever analysis, dashboard or application that you had, all the way that is consumed by someone, it was very slow and very complicated because most likely you needed to give it to some developer in the IT department for them to do a refactoring and then be able to put it into production. And this by now has more or less appeared a bit, but back then it was reality. So, which meant again, fighting for resources, who will be responsible for bringing this? And as a result also, well, projects started to fail because impossible to bring it into a production for multiple reasons. So then leadership thinks, wow, this team is on one side expensive but on, and and they're doing, they're doing things but at the same time we do not see it so so we don't see it on the website we do not see that our customers are, are happier because of them and so on so why do we have them and this was again like another thing in that i realized how um, even though we can be doing great things on paper or in a prototype having them visible for top management for the end user it was a completely different challenge Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the recurring themes that's come up from hearing from business leaders like yourself on the podcast, where you really need that buy-in into data science and machine learning from the very top level so that you can be able to be resilient to those failures and not just have the entire organization shut down. All the data science is fired after uh, it doesn't re return results after just like one year or something. 
That's very true. I, I agree that. Uh, so for any data initiatives, it is important that uh, there is someone in the leadership who really believes into that because there is the opposite side. There is a lot of people uh, who either do not understand it or do not see value in it. And they say, wow, uh, this data science, this machine learning, this is too advanced. This is like the cherry on the cake. So uh, let us wait, uh, let's say, five years to get the, all the basics right, and only then we can start doing something. Um, and if that's the case, then it's very difficult for the data science team to thrive because already from the beginning, the leadership is, is, will not be cooperative. Mm-hmm. And then after your experience at Rocket Internet, of course, you've been at other leading companies, leading the data science, machine learning teams. What were, throughout those experiences, what were some of the biggest shifts in your thinking about machine learning and data science and how you're thinking about it about it now in terms of how companies are adopting it and what its main uses are? Um, yes. One of the major transitions that I had was when I moved to Philip Morris International, which is a tobacco manufacturer. And this was interesting because there was a, a completely different approach to how uh, people will work and also what I expected as data products because I only knew the internet industry. And here in the internet uh, for internet products, we have on one side an abundance of data. Also, a lot of the topics have to do with more real-time results or working so with some sort of streams and so on. Whereas um, by a more established company such as Philip Morris, Philip Morris has 80,000 employees all over the world. They are a, they have a long history, uh, so over multiple decades. Here, the challenges were very different. So starting with um, getting access to, to systems. So in, in companies where there is a DNA uh, that is IT data-driven, having access to resources is very easy, straightforward. But in one where is still going through this transformation, alone getting access to a database is a matter that can take months because one needs to negotiate it, needs to be approved. Then how do you get access at, uh, like that? So security concerns and so on. So it's very challenging. So one of the things that I realized is that um, a lot of the things that are taught in, let's say, uh, online content, podcasts, videos, and so on, are very focused into the classic internet digital model. But there is a world out there also of data scientists, data experts, and so on, that working at these more traditional businesses, and their type of problems is very different. So alone little things as, for example, in these very established organizations, one cannot go and just install Linux on their own computer or get a, a, a MacBook. One has to work with Windows and with a very uh, so restrictive um, so landscape of applications that one can install and so on. I feel that there is still a lot that can be said for those who are not in, in a digital environment. Then if I think about uh, some uh, any techniques, models, and so on, I realize that so the key is always to focus on... Um, getting something ready for the stakeholders to show. Often uh, we are uh, technical people, we are excited by uh, delays and greatest, and then we want to just try it and we believe that it will be better than what is existing there. But the problem is that when we work with these very advanced technologies, they are often rather fragile or they are not really applicable for the environment where we're moving. At the same time, the business has some patience. So I think that especially as a, as a, a new hire in the organization, it's very important to show results fast. And for that reason, I saw that one needs to, even to rules of thumb, heuristics, very basic approaches, go in order to get some first success stories and only then build upon uh, some more advanced models. And it's something that, um, so took me some time to understand, but now I realize first, let's start with uh, so the most basic thing, get it right, let's uh, win hearts and minds, and only then we go into the next step. 
Yeah, absolutely. Something that you touched on before, which I really liked, was about the old world companies, as you said, where as someone who works in tech, I think it's really easy to get caught up in a a bubble where all your friends work in tech and you don't necessarily have that experience from other people about industries like manufacturing, like industrials and, and things like those. How big of an opportunity do you think there is for data science and machine learning in more of those lower tech, so quote unquote, industries? It varies a lot on, on, I would say, on one side, the type of company and as well as the leadership. So if one finds a company where the leadership wants to have a transformation, is very digitally oriented, and is really ready to invest into it and have the patient, then it is amazing because there is so much that one can basically push and transform and have an impact. But on the other side, if uh, the leadership um, is maybe still uncertain, if there is no real buy-in and on top, there's no infrastructure ready, then a data scientist, unless the person uh, likes an environment where uh, there is a lot of adversity, the person might be a little bit uh, unhappy because often in these uh, more established businesses, the problem is that um, they will not be ready for any type of data activities. So let's say the databases, they will be meant for other type of use cases. So one needs to start establishing the the right schemas, the right uh, database infrastructure in order to work with it. Then a classic tools that we like to use in the digital world, let's say, such as BigQuery, um, there will be some concerns of, let's say, uh, giving data to Google. So uh, in big uh, classical businesses, there are a lot of thoughts, a lot of concerns into using cloud services because of uh, confidentiality, because of uh, not giving access to uh, secrets and so on. Here again becomes another uh, challenge of uh, having to find what is the right on-premise solution and so on. So I feel that is a very fulfilling and I do think that there is a lot of space so how a data scientist can have impact. I I am always very happy when I meet uh, companies that are from more established industries trying to become digital and and I believe that that's the only way that they have in order to survive because we're becoming a complete data-driven world and if they do not become just as any digital company, then they might not survive. But at the same time, if the leadership is not fully involved and ready to put investments in time in terms of resources uh, and time, then uh, any person who will come to do this role will have a very complicated environment. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And now to move on to some of your machine learning research, and I really want to focus on this, uh, this pivot for a second that you made to go out of industry and go do a PhD. And so that, this seems like a, a very, quite a non-traditional path to, uh, for someone who goes and gets a machine learning PhD. So can you talk about exiting the industry and starting to go into academia? It's rather uncommon in that, let's say, the classical thing would be, okay, I do, let's say, my undergrad and I do uh, some some graduate studies and then I decide to do doctoral studies. And then after that, I go and work. And with me, it was a little the other way around where first uh, I I saw work and then I decided I want to do a PhD. For me, it was a situation that I always wanted to understand so why things work, what is the uh, logic behind certain algorithms. And also I thought, okay, I want to do algorithms myself. I want to come with new ideas that can uh, help solve an, a problem better. And the situation in a digital uh, company in a very agile one, startups and so on, is that we are firefighters. There, there is no time really for to go deep into a problem. Every day there are new problems and we just have to find some quick solution and move to the next. I moved to Philip Morris, and then I taught there uh, in a big 
organization that is established and so on, it might be possible to do it. It was up to a certain extent, but of course, as it is in any company, there are always deadlines, the projects must have an ending date. And often what matters is just that things work, but not that one has the best result, the most sophisticated one and so on. So I realized, okay, how can I uh, obtain this? How can I really go deep into um, so the foundations of the tools that we're working in, not treat them as black boxes or just uh, with an intuitive understanding, but really really have a grasp of why is it doing what is it doing? And also, how can I develop things myself? And I realized this has to be done in a, a PhD program. And what was interesting was that, um, so I was already uh, so doing on the side a, a, another master's degree. So I was uh, I, I a little bit uh, so bored and I said, okay, we'll do another master's degree. Uh, and it was basically on, on data science. And then my advisor in, so who is a, a well-renowned professor in, in, in Russia. Um, so I, I told him I would like to do this. And I'm also very interested in the intersection of business problems, uh, so managerial problems, and machine learning. And he was also heavily involved with industry. So there was here a common understanding. And uh, so I, I moved to his group in order to do um, machine learning research. Very interesting, especially... And it totally makes sense that you'd be interested in more of that business side. And it's great that you were able to find an advisor who also shares that interest. What does that collaboration between, or what does the, what does it look like for there be to be more collaboration between businesses and academia in terms of the data science? Yes, there, there's definitely a big gap in between what's happening in academia and what's happening in business in that, um, so it, Starting with how we, we do software development, how academics uh, do any type of um, so algorithm and so on is very different as how it happens in companies. And also the uh, type of problems that people are thinking. Um, the, the, there are, of course, professors and research groups that are very applied and working very closely with companies. But often it's the case that um, in academia, one is thinking rather in general solutions that might work on their settings, whereas in an in, in industry, we want a very specific solution that ideally should be robust and so on. So there are considerations that are uh, very different for both sides that make them a little bit of uh, unable to communicate. But I see that there is also a lot of uh, possibilities to strengthen uh, so how they work together. I would say one is on the topic of um, upskilling is the, uh, the teams in that more and more we're seeing in that into the industry, into the market, we have data scientists and machine learning specialists who come from a non-mathematical computer science background, who maybe they studied a business or with some statistics and they're very interested and they want to become better. They even learn how to program themselves. Or some someone who has done quite some software development and is very interested into this career path. The question is how can you make uh, these uh, new elements a full data scientist, full machine learning specialist. And this is where I see that there's a lot of space for upskilling in terms of uh, so crash courses or uh, nano degrees and so on to bring everyone up, up to speed. Because we live in a field where things move so fast, they are also very rich in, in uh, theory and literature. And it's almost impossible or really impossible for anyone to uh, be up to date on what is the latest things, but also what are the foundations behind uh, the tools that we're working? So definitely on, on the upskilling side and on the academic side, 
uh, one of the situations that happens still is a lack to interest in data sets. In that often, uh, so in academia, one has, so to say, a hammer, one is lacking nails. And uh, here I see there is so much potential in um, companies uh, coming and saying, I, ha- I have this data set, so why not you look into how it fits into your problem? So there are some uh, very uh, forward-looking companies that are already doing that, especially in the IT sector and so on, but there are so many others that uh, they could do more and uh, get involved, and that way can also serve as a way to, to recruit in that if one gets involved with a department, one starts doing some collaboration and sharing data, then potentially some members of that department, they might be, get very interested into uh, the type of problems that have been solved. And they might say, oh, I want after graduation to join the company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's something I've never really thought about before, about uh, bringing those data sets out of companies. And it seems that it is becoming a little bit more more common, especially it seems that a lot of the breakthroughs that we have seen in machine learning have come because of these highly curated gigantic data sets, just like the M to M 100 model from Facebook was them curating lang- uh, a giant multilingual translation data set. Of course, all of OpenAI's work was enable- enabled because they were able to scrape the web of all the text. But I want to focus on specifically what your some of your research is based on, which is machine learning for event sequences, as you put it, unsupervised learning. How did you get interested in that f- subfield specifically? Uh, yes, I have always been interested for uh, time series uh, related uh, problems. And in, in time series, so we have normally measures that are on the same space of time. So let's say every minute, every second, and so there's always something. But there are a lot of problems where we're not measuring all the time. So let's think about, let's say, visiting a, a doctor. So normally I will go and visit a doctor when I don't feel well. And that might be, let's say, a six months from now or let's say tomorrow. It's very uncertain when the visit will happen. And after that, it's also uncertain if there will be follow-up visits. So maybe I need multiple treatments, visit multiple specialists and so on. So it can be that for a long period of time, there is nothing. And then all of a sudden, there is a lot. Or for example, if we think about um, so something closer to us in the topic of uh, cloud computing. So when we're working with uh, Amazon Web Services and we want to launch an instance, we do not need an instance all the time. So only when we need to, and so basically start doing some, some work. So it can happen that uh, we do not use it for two months and all of a sudden we turn it uh, up for some hours, then down and so on. So there are all these observations that are happening at different moments in time. And the question is here on one side, um, which type of event will that be? So will it be that the person will, let's say, start a new instance or will shut down an existing instance? Or um, maybe it can be that a existing instance will make it bigger and so on. So it can be multiple categories of events. And then it's the topic of when will that happen? And this is very relevant because if we think about, let's say, like a cloud computing, they, might, they need to know how many resources they need if they have enough physical machines for all these virtual, in, virtual instances. Similar happens, for example, in the case of, uh, so here, the doctor visits, that if I'm, let's say, like a hospital and uh, suddenly there is a, a, an outbreak of, a, so let's say, like cholera or so, then I, all of a sudden I might have a lot of people coming to my hospital and follow visits and so on. So I might be interested in modeling this type of things to, or once I measure my capacity, but also in, to keep a little bit of follow-up on my existing uh, customer base or patients and so on. And I realized that these type of problems cannot be really modeled with uh, time series techniques. In time series, we're mostly focused a little bit on forecasting. So this will be like the main uh, thing that we do. 
And, and also we have this topic that we are always measuring uh, something at the same moment in time. And there will always be some sort of uh, evaluation. So let's say we think about um, some movement data or heartbeats and so on. So every second, I already have some observation. Whereas uh, for sequences, you can have uh, so uh, very sparse data sets. And if you try to use time series techniques for this type of sequences, then it does not work. It seems like a lot of the sequence working machine learning, of course, has been focused on language modeling, and which makes sense for a lot of reasons. What would be the main differences between how you're viewing modeling for event sequences and rather than language sequences that the, most of the traditional models seem to be based on right now? Interesting is that there's a lot of cross-pollination, and uh, I would say that language models are the driving force right now in machine learning, especially transformers architectures. So there, there is a, a lot of interesting research happening for um, making transformers architecture um, functional for uh, sequences that are non-linguistic. Um, and what is interesting here is that uh, on one side with the transformer architecture, one has these uh, long-term dependencies. But at the same time, something that uh, one is interested when one is modeling event sequences is that um, there are cases where we might not observe something, but when we observe, we can expect that there will be a lot of successive events. So something is classical in, in modeling this type of uh, event sequences. So the, the, the field called temporal point processes. And uh, one might have known it as Poisson process or also Hox process and so on. This is like the classical statistical literature for this type of problems of event sequences. But more and more is the machine learning, deep learning one coming of trying to solve this basically with variations of uh, transformers architectures or also with recurring neural networks or even convolutional neural networks. And here the challenge is compared to uh, the topic of uh, language models in that I want also to model uh, this uh, moment when the next event will happen and what will be the follow-up events. So, for example, if we think about earthquakes, this will be a very classical example where there is not an earthquake in a very long time, maybe decades. But once it happens, there will be follow-up events in a very short space of time. And we know that from experience. There is a big one and we know that we have to stay outside home because there will be smaller ones uh, minutes after and that can be dangerous. Oh, yeah, very interesting. What are some of the other data sets that you've specifically worked with for this kind of event sequencing and how have the results been so far? What are the benchmarks for people who aren't uh, in this world? Yes. Um, the, the very exciting thing is that it's so diverse, the, the, uh, all the things that one can do. So when one thinks about event sequences and uh, all this universe of uh, temporal point processes in that, for example, one problem that I'm currently looking at is related to uh, medical claims. So medical invoices. And if we think about an invoice, we think basically it's of a tabular data where I will have my, um, so a prescription. So I need to take this medicine. It will have the quantity, but also have a price and also a date, of course. And basically all these invoices, I can model them as an embedding and use this as a, a for, for, for a sequence problem. And with that, for example, one can work on a, so a insurance claims, on trying to assess if there is fraud, um, a classical problem in insurance companies that, for example, one might uh, try to build something different, a different price, or, or a, a, the invoice might not be a real one and so on, by using basically a combination of deep learning plus embeddings and um, modeling as a 
sequence problem, one can try to detect uh, so here if uh, there is a potential fraud or not in a claim. I've also seen that you've done work on topological data analysis, and of course that seems like a very harsh topic to get into, at least for someone who doesn't have a large math background. Can you briefly discuss what, what your interest in topological data analysis has been and how you would explain it to someone new to the field? Yes. Um, it is interesting that topological analysis is still a bit of a more obscure field. This is a smaller community, but I think that it will be coming uh, so stronger uh, over time, especially because there are more and more connections with neural network architectures on understanding how a, a topology, so neural network can be modeled as, 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 a, as a topology, the connections. And as a result, I, I am sure that we'll be seeing more and more. And, and if you see top conferences, now there is every year a couple of publications that go into this direction, but I think that will become much more mainstream. At the same time, as you said, it is a topic that requires a lot of background knowledge. It is very complicated to get into. There is not much literature. And also, there are very few courses at the university specifically dedicated to a TVA and so on. So as a result, it is still a very high bar to master. But why is TVA? The idea that in the end, um, data can be represented in, in space, and then that this representation might have some sort of shape. And not only that, but also that we do not need all elements in uh, this representation in order to reconstruct this. So I found it also interesting because for me it was about, um, I was thinking how I can model uh, so sequence problems, time series, and so on, and have a, a simplified representation of them, so to say like a skeleton of a, a, so of, of a data set that serves as a summary and I can use it to process it in, in, in our tasks. And I came into the topic of TDA and I found this fascinating because what is very interesting is that the techniques are very robust and applied to um, all type of problems. So if we think about, let's say, something such as, a, so let, let, let's say, um, so a CNN or an RNN, these are techniques that are, uh, so they have a lot of parameters. They are also very prone to uh, any changes in the hyperparameters. And not only that, but also, although uh, they can be used in many use cases, we also, we, we also have to tailor them for a specific problem at hand. Whereas TDA is something much more um, so generic in that on one side, there is a little to um, so compute in terms of hyperparameters, but also the techniques that we see that are used to, for example, 3D data, they can also be employed for time series. So although it is a community that is rather very small, the cross-pollination that happens across uh, not only uh, applications, but also uh, domains in science and, and, and academia, it is very fruitful and a lot of uh, very interesting things are happening. So if someone has a, a strong interest for mathematics and wants to have, let's say, a different profile than the classic uh, machine learning specialist with a big focus on deep learning, I say TVA is a beautiful space to start. So if I'm understanding correctly, you're constructing more of a a map, so to speak, of the overall field of what the data is looking like. And so that would that would you say that it would be more suited for situations in which you have less specific data points in general, but a better picture of what the overall space of the data should look like? So we can think that this is a little bit of like dimensionality reduction. So uh, there, there is a lot of work that shows that, for example, so like PCA and uh, so related method, there is basically so flavors of TDA. And, and so if we think about, uh, so one of our 
biggest challenge that we have in machine learning is that so normally our data might be very so highly dimensional and, and might be very complicated. And before we need to do a lot of handcrafting of features before we had deep learning, embeddings, and all that. So how can we fit, for example, into an SVM, a, a very complicated uh, object that we have as a problem? And the classical thing will be, okay, let's reduce the dimensionality. Let's see how we can do it. Or let's do some clustering in first, and then based on that, we can proceed. And TDA is basically that. In fact, where TDA has shown the most success is in clustering applications. Interesting. So it's more of maybe a pre-processing technique before and to generate an alternate way to generate an embedding that can then be used in more downstream applications? Or is it, uh, what are some of the specific applications where it's better to use these sort of techniques rather than the uh, more standard ones? Yes. So, so, so indeed, one can see it as, as a, a pre-processing step. Uh, and uh, there are good reasons for that in that uh, there is still very hard to make a TDA um, so automatically differentiable. There are already some architectures, but it's still a very nascent topic of uh, so research on how we can basically have end-to-end uh, pipelines where uh, we'll have our uh, deep learning architecture that is getting, uh, that is having a, a, a TDA model. And when we think, okay, so where can we use it or where, where this has been uh, so successful? It is very uh, successful in, for example, medical applications where um, we'll have definitely more observations. Uh, so from a single, uh, let's say like a, a single patient, we'll have so many data points, but very few patients. And so we think we can think there. We can think also, for example, anything related to bioinformatics. There, there, there's a lot of, of work there. There are actually quite some books only for TDA for bioinformatics. So in another spaces, for example, it's so 3D modeling and so on. Anything that is basically very high dimensional with a lot of, uh, so on one side, smaller data sets in terms of numbers of uh, observations, but at the same time, very high dimensional. That's where I think TDA is a very good candidate. You've been, of course, publishing quite a bit at in your work and your PhD. What are some of the most effective research processes that you've picked up through doing the through doing all of your research and from learning from your peers at the uh, ADA-SE group, what are some of the best practices that you have for coming up with ideas, for bringing those ideas to into research? Something I've learned is that uh, academic research is a little bit like doing a startup in that the, our research group is basically a startup and then we're releasing new products that will be publications. And as a result, it is the teamwork what is decisive. These days, it's impossible or close to impossible to get a good publication working alone. Even recently, I was looking at some stats that show, for example, for NeurIPS, that if we look uh, on back in 2007, something around 30% of all publications, they were by single authors. These days, it's less than 5%. So the field is much more complicated, competitive, and so on. And if one doesn't have a team of four or five persons or more, it's very difficult to get uh, so good results to show. This has to do because uh, we have so many experiments to run. There are so many things to consider. And also the quality of the publication themselves has increased so much that um, you need to invest a lot of time doing a good manuscript. So I have learned that teamwork and basically trying to uh, sell your own ideas because in a research group, it's also that everyone is doing their own thing. So one is to go and promote what he's doing in order to get others excited and then for them to stop or at least pause the current direction to come and help you. 
and same applies working with uh, other groups, other universities, and so on. So it has a lot basically to be like a startupper where one is to sell the idea, the vision, and uh, do lead the, 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 the team and do this a uh, very close um, and very focused team for a period of three to six months. And it's also something I have learned in that. Uh, compared to, for example, uh, regular computer science or, or startups and so on, uh, doing research is uh, something that is with a lot of uncertainty in that uh, one is definitely at least three months in order to get some fair results, but it can be that one comes to the conclusion that uh, this is something not relevant and one needs to change direction and so on. So on one side, it is the situation of one needs to be very convinced about what one is doing, but at the same time, one must be ready to drastically pivot into another direction when one realizes that this is not something that might be uh, potentially attractive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that comparison a lot between between research and the startups. I've never heard it put that way before, but it's definitely an apt comparison. And you've mentioned before that, uh, before we start recording, that you're now working with Stanford to create the spiritual successor, as you put it, to Facebook's open source project, Profit, uh, which is their library for forecasting. Can you talk a little bit about how you got started with working on that and what your aims for working on it are? Yes. And this, this comes again uh, on the importance of, let's say, seeing oneself as, as a startupper in that um, networking is key wherever we go, be in, in industry, being academia and so on. And in this case, what happened was that uh, I am a part of a, a organization. Uh, and in this organization, we had basically a reunion of members and in different of members, it was just a Zoom discussion and I saw the list of participants and I saw this person that I said, I think I have seen this, his name in some publication. And this was not an academic uh, so organization. So it was not necessarily that would be here researchers in machine learning and so on. So I go and check again and say, wow, actually I have uh, worked, uh, I have read his work and familiar with it. And this person is basically also doing time series sequences of work for industry problems. So I write this person. And we connected and we realized we we're working on the same things. And the person told me, hey, I have this, this project that I'm working on. His name is Oscar Tribe. And he, he showed me, I'm, 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 I have been working for some time here in World Profit. And I said, wow, this sounds so exciting because from the industry, I know how hard it is to uh, do good forecasting in that most of the time, forecasting is done by a, a department of experts. But these experts tend to have a strong background in business. And they might be in a non-IT department in the organization. So it can be demand planning, it can be operations and so on. So they have a very different nature to the classic IT. But at the same time, they need to get good results. And they're also not developers. They're not uh, so computationally inclined. So how can we uh, offer them a tool that is at the same time uh, so very modern, that is easy to use, but also that brings uh, these state-of-the-art approaches? and this is basically what Neural Profit is trying to achieve. And I feel completely identified with it. I said, wow, uh, so I'm completely by, bought in. So I, I will here move resources on my side. I, I convinced my advisor. I got other students on board and so on. And now we're a much larger team working behind it. And what is very exciting is that one side we have basically, uh, so Stanford, who is a, uh, one of the uh, leading forces behind, but also Facebook has also been supporting it uh, as, as a successor or spiritual successor of profit will continue existing, of course, because the use cases are different. Um, but we are seeing also that our companies uh, that are more of the classical ones that we have been talking about, oil and gas, metallurgic, the heavy industry, 
they are using neural profit because it solves the problems and also because they have these constraints of not being IT people uh, capable of uh, having access to Amazon Web Services and deploying all these uh, Docker containers and so on. They are just domain experts who want to get results and get the best possible results. Yeah, in previous conversations with podcast guests, that's definitely another theme that keeps coming up where you want to, uh, currently the job of a data scientist, as you've hinted at before, is very much uh, a lot of boilerplate stuff that's very basic for them, but might when they're working with a domain expert, it might uh, be seem very technical to someone who is not as mathematical as that person with the data science, computer science background. How in general do you think about designing tools for people who are not as technical like NeuroProfit, where you want people who are experts in their more in their features and in the business rather than in the computer science? Yes. So I see here that uh, there is a, a big change in, in the machine learning space in that now we need to see us as uh, software engineering uh, people and also to identify if we are consumers of uh, the library or will be producing libraries. And if we are producing libraries, something that I find uh, very relevant is to make it as easy as possible to, to install in that, for example, having a, a Docker container ready where uh, with instructions, just do this and it will launch everything that you need. is helpful for someone who has access to Docker. Also offering uh, the possibility to deploy into, for example, um, so Google Collaboratory. Uh, I see that a lot of things are happening uh, in Google Collaboratory in terms of uh, how people are using um, and doing data science in that before it will be common for uh, someone who starts doing data science at a company, they will be necessary to get like a beefy computer and also maybe some internal server and so on. These days, one just launches an instance on, on Google Colab and then one can start running. So if one is doing a, a libraries that can be used by, that should be used by a broader audience, then ideally go for these people are. And this basically Places such as Google Colab have some image on Amazon Web Service so, so people can, can get it from there. Uh, of course, the topic of documentation is something that um, there, there, is, there is always so much that can be done in, in terms of documentation to, to be offered uh, in how to install, provide tutorials, write articles in towards data science. Uh, all this helps into uh, helping people how to get adopted because reality is that most of us in data science, uh, we start taking a solution from Stack Overflow or towards data science as a like a starting point skeleton. So we just copy paste it and from there we, we build up on. And if we are developing a library and we want that this library is adopted by as many people as possible, we need also to provide them with these things. Otherwise, it, it will be difficult for them. Yeah, definitely. I'm thinking of a situation that just that I experienced yesterday where there was a library I was using that was very important, but it definitely didn't have the best documentation. And so I had to die, go like into the code itself to be able to figure out what was going on. And like you say, that's it's very important because obviously someone who is not as skilled at programming is definitely not going to be able to, to do something like that. So the documentation becomes very important. How would, if someone wants to get started in using NeuroProfit, is it just a used for all types of time series forecasting, or is there a specific subfield inside of that you think would be particularly suited for people to try out? 
Yes. So we're focusing heavily on the whole topic of industry. In, um, we think that there is a big space there uh, to, to help uh, anyone who is doing, let's say, uh, so forecasting of uh, demand for gas or um, so, let's say, uh, temperature of uh, ovens in a metallurgy company and so on. So we want to, to focus there. We have been doing a lot of things that are connected to how to facilitate that. And also in our own um, so development internally, we're focusing that a lot. Another thing that I, I, I'm very keen on into developing further, but at the moment there is nothing yet, is for financial services in that if I think of a forecasting of a, so something such as, a, let's say, assets, stocks, and so on, here there is still a bit of a gap in the community that is working in actuarial sciences versus those who are in machine learning and so on. So another direction where I'm very keen into developing the library further and what is interesting if more members of the community uh, join it to start using it is basically on financial services. But in general, the nice thing about Neural Profit is that it is very flexible in that at its core is just, let's say, doing uh, so an auto-regression. So just as one would have an ARMA process, Neural Profit is that. But given that one can do it in a, a, one can stack layers and so on, then one can, one has the flexibility that one can just have like a vanilla ARMA process, but one can have a very deep architecture. And tools that we're working on in order to facilitate is we want to do more diagnostics on uh, how uh, people can understand what's going on below the hood. Because another thing that we believe is that uh, given that we want experts who are in more traditional industries using the library, um, then they need to understand what is happening and they also need to be able to present the results to other stakeholders. So if there are no diagnostic tools for them, then um, it happens, and I saw it often uh, throughout my career, that people will say, oh, that is interesting, but I want to understand why is this? So although... We, so ideally we want to include, let's say, more like, so features, models, and so on, but at least the starting points to offer some sort of diagnostic tools. And it's something that, that we'll be offering. And what is very nice is that this library is very young. So we made it public just at the end uh, of um, basically 2020. And so it's very fresh when it came out and it started to get more attention. And as a result, there is a lot of space on understanding what are the sweet spots, but also for anyone who is inclined to join and saying, I want to get some experience doing open source development. I am very interested in time series. I am very interested in neural forecasting, which is also a very thriving area of academia, where interestingly, until very recently, there was not much work around doing time series forecasting with deep models. So this is something that has happened in the last two years, more or less, and there is so much more left to be done. So if someone feels that this is something interesting, uh, we are very welcoming for uh, anyone to, of course, start using it, but also join the team and develop new use cases, new features, include things that can help them solve their own problems. That's super interesting that you mentioned that there hasn't been that much research into forecasting with these deeper neural networks. What do you think is the reason for that because it does seem like a very valuable problem to get better at well if i look at who are the driving forces behind the latest techniques for neural forecasting it is basically amazon and uh, for obvious reasons uh, why they will need good forecasting but 
if we think uh, so who else uh, might need it others do not have um, the size of the technical teams the resources and so on in order to advance the, the field and also forecasting um, if we think so who is doing forecasting well the financial community is doing uh, so here uh, time series forecasting but also uh, in uh, demand planning and so on so this is not necessarily communities that have been fully exposed to the deep learning revolution and as a result uh, they might not know where to start and so on. So uh, I, I really see how this all began from people at Amazon, and this remains the driving force behind. Uh, but I, I see that as it becomes more and more popular, and of course other people are taking these architectures and modifying them more for their use cases and so on. And for that reason, we are seeing uh, more work. But there is so much more that left to be done that um, definitely if someone is thinking, oh, I want to do a PhD and I like a lot uh, time series forecasting, then... Neural forecasting is one direction they strive. So a lot of these subfields of machine learning, they'll have their canonical data set, canonical benchmark, and researchers will try and get the state-of-the-art result on that. What's the benchmark for forecasting in the field right now? Yes, there are some nice competitions that happen each year called the M competitions. And uh, there have been in, in M1, M2, M3, M4 competitions. Last one happened just last year called the M4 competition. And what is very interesting is that each year, the nature of the time series changes. Last year, it was done together with Walmart, and it was focused on two topics that are relevant for time series forecasting. One is just the pure point prediction, getting the best possible result, and the other one was on uh, uncertainty quantification. So it was on developing good probabilistic forecasts. And this is, say, like the Olympiads of uh, the forecasting community, where um, so hundreds of teams, they participate and all types of approaches are presented and so on. And uh, what is nice is that the organizers, they're in the end academics. So they make an effort also to compile these approaches, try to understand them in order to provide best practices for the community. In the both the research world and with no profit, starting to bring some of this research into people who can utilize it in their business. How are you thinking about what techniques to bring over from research into that library when a sort of a technique is enough to or good enough, robust enough, seems good enough to be added to that library. And it seems like there's a lot of thought processes here. For example, uh, Hugging Face is perfectly apt to have any cutting edge model. doesn't matter, just uh, committed to their library for everyone to be able to use. Are you thinking a bit more in terms of that? Or are you thinking more in terms of we only want the very best models so that it's very so that someone using it can just pick any of them and it'll work perfectly fine. So I see that it, it, it is a little bit of organic, uh, so in that, uh, for example, something like Hogging Face, well, there's a huge community behind, plus on top, there is a company involved and so on. So in that case, it is possible to tackle multiple problems at the same time. But when one is talking about like, smaller uh, communities doing open source, then the idea is to, to focus as much as possible to get some use cases really well and then build it from there. And this is a little bit the approach that we are trying to follow now in that we are finding the sweet spot into for which use cases neural profit is really the best model. And then from there, so see how we can evolve it and offer, let's say, like a, a holistic experience for a user for this type of use cases. So ideally, that we can say, okay, if you're a person who is in these industries for this type of problems, neural profit is your go-to library. Whereas if you are not covered by this, then you can, of course, use it as a baseline. It will give you good results and so on. But we might still need some time in order to come and, and cover you completely. Um, what I do think is that also, uh, at the moment, we are focused only in, in 
a little bit in a, as a monolithic architecture where we have some best practices for specific use case, but we're thinking about doing it much, much more modular. And just as in hogging phase, one can basically replace the uh, so model that we that one wants to use. One can have now so bird, one can have so now GPT two, and so on. Something like that to have it in the case of neural profit and in, in, in switching the, the type of engine that is being used for computing mm. uh, the, the forecasting. Okay, interesting. You already mentioned that some of the things that you're working on in terms of the roadmap for neural profit and for the exploitability, causality, what are some of the other things that people can look forward to? It is a young library actively developing. What are some of the other things on the roadmap? Well, one of the things the software we are very excited about is on trying to become multilingual. And so, for example, having a version for Julia, the programming language. And this is something where I, I see a lot of potential uh, in, into delving in, into Julia and providing one, especially because uh, Julia is still a much younger ecosystem. And also the language itself is one that is fantastic and that I can recommend to any uh, data scientist, machine learning specialist, if they want to extend their horizons and acquire a new skill set, then go and learn Julia. And as a result, uh, one of the things that we are looking into is how we can bring Julia into, uh, how can we bring neural profit into the Julia ecosystem? That's super interesting. It opens up a whole can of worms because Julia is something that I've only uh, recently been on my radar and that I've only briefly looked into. But it, like you said, does look extremely powerful for because it has those auto-diff features and it's very easy to code something up and have it be just run gradients on those functions. But it, uh, on the other side, it's adopting new languages in any sort of field is extremely difficult. And there's tons of languages that ended up dying and never being used in anything. Where do you see Julia's future? Do you think it'll stay a research language or do you think some people will start using it more in industry? Well, it's already being used in industry, but it's a little bit again on, we do not see it because the industries that are uh, using it, they're not exactly the classic uh, data science machine learning industries in that so, for example, uh, Julia is very popular among uh, engineers. So if, let's say, you are doing some sort of uh, Monte Carlo computations, and uh, so in order to evaluate something, then um, until now you have uh, limited options such as MATLAB and so on that you will work on. And Julia is a much more elegant, advanced, and powerful environment. So in communities connected to, for example, optimization, uh, so engineering and so on, uh, there is a lot of things happening uh, so with Julia, both in academia as well as in industry. Quite some companies are adopting Julia for that. And it's, of course, very hard uh, to, to see into the future. If uh, So what will happen with a given language and so on? So, for example, uh, many years ago, I was very bullish on Scala. I thought that uh, basically uh, Python has some limitations and Scala uh, is a good uh, so complement to the limitation of Python. I thought Scala would become something big. It became something, but not what I was expecting it would become. So it's hard to see into the future, but what I can see is that there is a lot happening um, behind Julia. There is also a, a, the, the leadership behind Julia is really some of the smartest people doing uh, so computer languages. And definitely uh, the, the language is, is one that uh, will unlikely disappear given now all the inertia that it has and all the very interesting features. And also what I see is that Potentially, there is a world where um, one can have, so to say, a boat in that I do think that Python will remain like this glue language in order to call libraries. Because if we think about so PyTorch or, or TensorFlow or um, 
And so any other modern library, so for the data stack, JAX and so on, in the end, we're just using Python calls in order to basically call other programming languages. So the, 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 there is a, not a full, so modern scientific library that is purely done on, with Python on Python. And I can see completely that, let's say, uh, if we're thinking about developers of uh, libraries, that, for example, one does the engine in, in, in Julia, so to say, and one has this Python wrapper, and then uh, in order to have the adoption, uh, but then in reality, it's just a, a Julia library disguised. And as a result, I, I think that it, it, it will become something. It's hard to estimate, but still we must think that if we think that the language just started less than a decade ago and is already a, so a name in the community, I do believe that a lot will happen because we can think about Python. Python is significantly older and is really also over the past 10 years where it really get a lot of inertia into the data analysis world. And so maybe in 10 years, so Julia is... A, a tool that will be required to know as well as knowing Python. It definitely makes a lot of sense with Python staying that, uh, like you said, glue framework and then being able to make those calls down to the other libraries that are more written in Julia. And I see parallels with possibly the Go language where Go is used for very specialized multi-threaded applications where you need that as a first-class primitive. And similarly, you might use Julia just when you need to have that autograd as your first-class primitive. So that definitely makes a lot of sense. To pivot a bit, into going back to the very beginning where you are, you were interested in startups, you did your own startup. What are you seeing in terms of the most exciting opportunities for machine learning to be used in to disrupt some of these existing industries? What I see is that, so for existing industries and, and, and also even for so digital industries, the whole topic of ML ops is one that is definitely very interesting in that it's becoming harder and harder as a data scientist, machine learner, and so on to be able to do everything or know everything. So we are becoming very specialized. So either we are more of a software engineering person or a, we are more focused on, on modeling or we're more of a mathematical minded and so on. And still we need to, to ship products that solve problems for our users. And that means that unless the company where we're involved, they have a very large uh, infrastructure and organization, in the end, we have to resort to tools. And what I see is that uh, more and more these tools, they start to go up into the uh, value chain and becoming uh, accessible for uh, business experts. In um, Maybe we're not yet to the point where this is, let's say, drag and drop and uh, auto ML, but uh, a lot of uh, things are starting to become a little bit like that. And that's why I believe that anything connected to enabling the data scientist to do her job better, be in terms of deployment, be in terms of um, having access to uh, Easter infrastructure and so on, this is something very exciting. If I think about applications of uh, machine learning for existing industries, uh, well, definitely healthcare is something that uh, so is right for disruption for obvious reasons. And although for decades people say healthcare is the next thing and so on, now I really see that um, a lot of things are happening, especially if we think about uh, deep learning and so on. So we can use... Um, the, the sensor that we have in, in, a, in a phone uh, and the camera and so in order to assess um, the well-being of a person. So it's possible, for example, to use video recognition 
to identify, let's say, characteristics of the, the skin color and the face and so on in order to assess if someone is stressed or is tired. So this can be part of a, 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 a startup, let's say, or a product that uh, helps uh, in uh, well-being. And so how, how if people are uh, so productive, if people are relaxed and so on, based alone on just their image and their video. And like that, there is so much that can, that can be done in, in the space of healthcare and wellness. Not necessarily, let's say, um, so very complicated medical uh, things where we have uh, constraints related to, let's say, privacy or also access to data, but also things of, for example, uh, meditation or uh, better sleep and so on that are connected to health. There are definitely so much uh, can still be done with machine learning. And I'm seeing a lot being done. Uh, so using, um, a lot of uh, video and image recognition uh, and even uh, modeling in 3D and so on. It seems increasingly clear that uh, the majority of these startups are that are going to be able to enable these new applications are going to be mostly their moat, so to speak, their value proposition is going to be in the data that they're able to collect. And as someone who has such a wide ranging view of a lot of these, you've done your own startup, of course, involved in, you have a better view of the algorithms with your research experience. How might a startup think about starting to create that unique data set and get it, get the flywheel, so to speak, going so that they can build better algorithms, get more users? Yes. Um, so it, it depends a lot on the sector where the, the company is uh, so interacting, but definitely it makes sense to find some first proof of concepts, some pilots with existing companies. Yeah, I see that uh, so in machine learning data science is a hot topic for any company. So uh, companies are very open to engage in some sort of a first uh, tryout, drive run, and uh, provide some data that can be used uh, to solve their problems. So as a result, uh, anyone who is interested in doing a, a did startup, then can start there. But also often, depending on the application, uh, the, the first years of the existence of the company is just in order to collect the data in, in some form, be by acquiring it from some databases or scraping it from the open internet. And so it, it, it depends a lot, but what I see is if one knows that there is a, a company, especially if one wants to work with existing companies, then one can approach and there is always a department that is connected to business development, innovation, and so, where they will be very glad to start uh, some pilot, paid pilot. And uh, I see it a lot that a lot of machine learning startups, that's how they start before starting selling it to third party customers. They find some key uh, pilot customers and they uh, have more of a service agreement and they organize a paid pilot for it uh, in order to on one side finance the development, but also to collect the necessary data for their own product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great answer. Well, what are some of the low hanging fruit that you think a lot of enterprises would benefit from maybe doing that, for taking that first step into adopting machine learning and data science? What are some of the easiest ways that they could get started and build that more of that culture around using data? Um, well, I would say that in, um, so they, they can start by looking at, at their database and, and then seeing so what they have the software for it available. But in general, software where I look at uh, software, there is potential is definitely in marketing. Always marketing is a topic where any company can start in that is a big expense. There's always space to, to optimize it. And there is uh, so much in uh, terms of literature, in terms of uh, even blog posts and so on. How can I build a model that uh, so helps me evaluate my, my marketing? This is one area. There is a personalization. 
personalization is always necessary in order to sell more. Um, but very few companies do it right. Uh, so most of the time, if we think about, let's say, some retailer, they send us the, the wrong products. Or if we think about a more of a service company, they don't know how to address us and so on. So uh, always personalization is something that's very interesting because we have already this customer data, as well as uh, there's a myriad of things that are already out there in uh, GitHub, the literature and so on. So anyone who is at these companies, they can just look for persistent things, adapt it to the problem and start seeing results. And now to start to wrap this up, is there anything that I didn't ask about that you think is something that you'd like to talk about or just any message that you'd like to leave the listeners? I would say uh, for the listeners uh, on the importance on deciding uh, so where they can deliver value, their strengths and get better at. Uh, often we think that we need to become these all-rounders and as a result, we invest a lot of time in our weaknesses. But instead of that, I would say double down on your strengths. And if uh, you are, let's say, someone who understands really a lot about uh, so the domain problem, then focus on that and really become the go-to person in your company. If on your side, you're really good at software development, then uh, continue doing that and see how you can do data products around that and so on. So in, in the end, um, so we have a limited amount of time and attention and better to be better at we're already at than uh, trying to overcome uh, so weaknesses that will take us a lot of time, especially if we think that these are uh, so uh, vast fields and alone uh, getting the uh, knowledge that is necessary. This requires multiple years into learning linear algebra, probability theory, machine learning, analysis, et cetera, et cetera. The, one can spend a whole life on it. And the question is, why do that? When one can just become really, really good at. So one, one should do that. However, there's a K-back. I do think that anyone should always invest time into being a better software engineer. I do think that any data scientist can always be a better software engineer. And this pays off both in terms of opportunities as well as a career growth. People should try to code more, be at a open source project, such as Neural Profit, for example, <laughs> joining the development team or any passion project that they have or trying to wrap any so prototype that they have, any notebook into an actual product because becoming a software engineer will open so many doors and also bring much more value to the business. 100% agree with that. And that's a message that uh, also is coming up over and over again with as I talk to everyone on the podcast. And now to get into some of the rapid fire questions that I always ask at the end of these interviews, what do you do for fun outside of work? I like a lot of history and art. So I, I am so to say like a history buff, especially 19th century European history. And even back in high school, when I was thinking what to do, I was thinking to study art history. So it's a bit, yeah, very different to what I do today, but I still enjoy a lot everything connected to art, to history and, and trying to understand how things repeated themselves. A lot of things that were happening by, back in the 19th century with changes, of course, are happening again these days. What might be uh, one example of, of something that you're currently seeing maybe play out again? A social upheaval. So if we think of the, the 19th century, it was a time of a lot of uh, changes in uh, society. And also there was a lot of disparity into income, into uh, so rights and so on. And here we are more or less in a similar space where we're seeing that, for example, there's a big gap between those who are in the digital industry, who are growing a lot in terms of career prospects, in terms of opportunities and so on, and those who are not part of the digital world who are left behind. And if we do not find a society a way how we can deal with that, then definitely there will be a lot of frictions. And we're starting to see frictions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And next, 
what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? Well, for data scientists, there are definitely a lot of books that I, that I like. For example, if one is starting, and so I believe that people should understand the basics in a reasonable manner, a really good book is called Machine Learning Refined by Jeremy Watt. It provides a, a very good uh, dissected uh, view of the field. And compared to other books, it doesn't get lost into a lot of things. It's very concise in some models, some a specific focus of machine learning and teaching really well. So if someone has never had a machine learning class and think, how can I start getting some foundations in machine learning without getting boggled down with all the math, machine learning refined is an excellent resource. However, if one is a mathematical person, I say that, there is this book called Foundations of Machine Learning by Maria Mori. And it's a beautiful book. It is super mathematical, super complex. It takes a lot of time to digest, but it's definitely one of the best books for the actual algorithms of, of machine learning. And if one is a Bayesian person, there is one called A First Course in Machine Learning by Mark Girolami. So that provides basically an introductory, a very well-explained course into how we can work with classical a Bayesian machine learning, such as a Bayesian linear regression, but also a Gaussian process. And it provides also a more advanced view in the field and so on. So I would say these three books, I always come and recommend for anyone who started into the field of machine learning. A lot of our listeners are either software engineers or students in school who are just starting to learn about ML and they want to start to get more into it. So yeah, they can definitely heed those recommendations. I'll put all the links below. And so next... You already gave, uh, I think, in your message before the what uh, the question I normally ask about advice, but so I'll skip that one. But what have you recently changed your mind on? I, I used to be very skeptical about deep learning, and uh, I, I used to think, uh, wow, there there is uh, not so much a foundation behind it; just only works. But uh, this is not something. This is more like an engineering than actual, let's say, like a something mathematical. But I have changed in my view dramatically on that, and I'm now very keen into it. And I really think that the whole topic of differential programming, automatic differentiation, and so on, will completely change not only machine learning and anything connected to data, but also how we do software engineering. I do think that in the future, software will have some sort of automatic differentiation so embedded into it. And as a result, our programs will be less deterministic and much more of a, a probabilistic nature. Yeah, yeah. It's the uh, software 2.0 idea that uh, Andre Carpathy has so aptly named. So Exactly. And lastly, what important truth do you very few people agree with you on? Uh, well, um, I see that a lot of, uh, so now we live in a time where, uh, so a lot of people are entering the field from a um, so top-down perspective. So let's say taking some uh, online courses, maybe downloading here PyTorch and doing some tutorials and so on. And as a result, um, on one side it's great that they get exposed, but I feel that more and more we're treating uh, things as a black box. So I do believe that nothing replaces uh, going into uh, trying to understand uh, the underlying uh, some mechanics, the underlying theory behind it. And that although this might be a, a time commitment, it makes sense to at least get uh, some basic understanding of wh what's behind and not treat things as black boxes, uh, especially uh, given that so we work with uh, things that are dependent on the data and even slightly changes. Uh, so our models are very brittle and as a result, it can be dramatically changed. So 
maybe it's not necessary to go and take a new undergrad degree in mathematics and so on, but at least um, so one can go and take a refresher, one can have a, a bit of a quick review to at least understand uh, why things are a bit happening as they are. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of situations that come up, even in even in industry where, like you said, you're you uh, just pick a model off of the shelf, and if you don't understand how it works, then when it starts to get poor results, it's you're not in the best situation if you don't understand it. So definitely. And I want to thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. It was such an interesting conversation. You have such a wide variety of experiences that made this really interesting. So again, thank you, Rodrigo, for coming onto the show. It was a fantastic time, Charlie. I, I enjoy a lot of the conversation and I hope that our listeners will also find something for them. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Charlie. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Mm-hmm.